0: Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. All right, so today we are joined by Richard Bartlett. Richard is an expert in bringing people together and catalyzing decentralized forms of organizing. He's co-founder of Lumio, a digital tool to help groups make better decisions together. He's also the co-founder of He's also co founder of The Hum, which is something like a management consultancy for non hierarchical organizations. He's a director and member of Inspiral, a network of people supporting each other to grow up and to get paid for doing meaningful work. He's currently working on a project called Micro Solidarity that's focused on building and sharing a collection of methodologies for community building, answering the questions of how can we build small scale, high trust mutually developmental groups. I'm a huge fan of Richard's work and the joy he seems to exhibit in living and interacting with people online. I first came across his work on Twitter, and I highly recommend following him. For show notes and links to Richard's work and other things discussed in our conversation, please head to my website, samhbarton.com slash podcast. And if you like the podcast, uh, please share it with your friends, rate it on iTunes, and if you really like it, you can support me financially through Patreon. For updates on future episodes, you can follow me on social media at Sam H. Barton, or subscribe to my newsletter, which you can find on my website. I'm very excited to share this conversation with you all. Our ability to tackle the grand global challenges we face ahead is dependent on us, all of us, coming together in the places we call home and taking action. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Richard Bartlett.
1: Uh thanks for inviting me. Uh telling a decade-long story, it's like <laughs> I can go on for hours and hours. Um maybe I'll try and put in some useful bullet points. Um so my accent, that's a good place to start. I'm from New Zealand, that's why I speak this weird kind of English. Um uh but it's a particular kind of New Zealand accent because I've been traveling for a long time. So I spent mm, about four years on the road with my partner Nati. And uh now we have temporarily settled in Italy. So I'm this kind of weird in between person that lives in lots of different places. Uh, what else is useful to know about me? I grew up in a very small town and like, well outside of a very small town in a very small country at the edge of the world. Um, and, and (laughs) on a farm and in a, um, in a fundamentalist Christian church, you know, so that's part, that's an important part of like how I show up in the world, I guess, is that background. Um, and yeah, the church left me behind in my, uh, sort of around when I was about 20, I got excommunicated. So that's another important part of, I guess, of the story for me. And then, um, <laughs> skipping a few years, I joined the Occupy movement in 2011. That was really formative for me. I guess that was my new church that I joined. And then as, um, Occupy, you know, disintegrated more or less, uh, my friends and I started a software platform called Lumio, which is a collective decision-making tool and did about, ooh, I think about five or six years of, um, being super committed to that startup, you know, like just all of my energy, uh, trying to cultivate an amazing team, building an amazing product and doing it in a way that really encapsulates some, some essential values about how I see the world, how we as a team see the world and, um, yeah, trying to do something radically positive trying to do something that's critical of capitalism, but still participating. Mm -hmm. Um, so that whole project was completely, completely absorbed me for a long time. And then, yeah, towards the end of that sort of five or six year period, um, I started to get more curious about what else is there beyond software? You know, like I have a vision for how the world could be more collaborative, more participatory, more equitable, um, more dynamic, creative, liberating all these things. Uh, and we were, you know, started with making software to help that project along. And then, and then at some point I started to go, well, what else is there? That's not software that, Mm -hmm. um, that would contribute to that vision. And so then, uh, Natty, who I mentioned, we started another company called the hum, which is a small consulting training company. And we're, I say we're like management consultants for non-hierarchical organizations, which is kind of a paradox, but we're going into, teams that are trying to work without traditional top-down hierarchical management system and supporting them to work through like what are the bugs We're troubleshooting the bugs of decentralized collaboration. So that, um, that expanded my field a lot beyond software into all of the interpersonal dynamics, culture, psychology. Um, yeah. How does decision-making work and conflict, all this sort of stuff. So much more into the, uh, human domain and a lot of the, a lot more of the soft skills rather mm. than just the technicalities. And then the last couple of years, what I've had increasingly putting more and more of my um, focus and energy on is a project that's come to be known as micro solidarity. And that's I guess in a way it's turning into a framework. I hate that word framework, but here I have <laughs> possibly uh, invented one, unfortunately, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a collection of methodologies uh, for community building essentially. And it's, it's a particular kind of community. It's like, how do we have communities that are uh, very small scale, very high trust, very um, developmental. So oriented towards personal development, but also social development. Thank like, how do we make better people who make a better world and how do we support each other to do that in a peer to peer way? So that's, that's really where my interest is at the moment. And, um, yeah, I think, I think that's some, some of the useful bullet points of the last decade and I'm happy to flesh out any yeah, more
0: detail. On yeah, which um, I here. guess before we dive into the micro solidarity and uh, I guess some of the more recent stuff, I'm, I, I think I'm just curious about how the, uh, your involvement in the Occupy movement and social justice kind of evolved. Um, and, because like it's been a bit of a journey for you, and I think that from you know I follow you on Twitter and I've listened to a few, you in a few of the podcasts. There's definitely been a you've you've changed your perspective on things. So I'm curious, uh, what was the what were your experiences with the Occupy movement um, and social justice in general? Where have you changed your mind, uh, and what parts of you have you kept, and which have you thrown away? And how does that how does that all fit in service to um, what you're up to at the moment?
1: Hmm. That's a great question. Thank you. I don't know. <laughs> I'll figure it out
0: by answering. Um, <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's what that's, we think normally, right? <laughs> I don't think yeah, up here. Yeah. I just talk and it just, the, yeah. the thoughts come out.
1: <laughs> so when I arrived in Occupy, I really didn't have um, much exposure to activism or yeah, social justice or um, critical theory or... Marxism or anarchism or anything, you know, like I didn't really have much exposure to this way of thinking. It's like I had my quite uh, cloistered religious past. And then I came out of the church and studied engineering at university and didn't really have much in the way of a a political consciousness. And then I joined a sort of, well sort of found my way into a kind of a punk subculture in Wellington where I'm from. And, you know, there's some kind of aesthetic of politics in, in punk um, but most of the people I was interacting with also didn't have much in the way of a, of a deep, um, yeah, like radical analysis. Uh, and then, yeah, then I got down to occupy and, um, I was just attracted to it because it seemed unique. It seemed different. It seemed like, um, the, well, the big attraction was this commitment to being leaderless, which is a word I'm not really committed to anymore, but the concept, um, in 2011 was pretty, inspiring for me. It seemed really obvious that yes, the the next big social movement that's going to change the world shouldn't have an obvious figurehead. It should be uh, emergent and networked like the internet is that seemed really self-evident to me. So that was one of the reasons that I felt called to go in. Um, and, and participating there was this exper- experience of like genuinely listening to other citizens for the first time. That was, that was the main activity was, especially in our process of general assemblies. And when we started, like we were doing two general assemblies a day. So morning and night, um, somewhere between 50 and 200 people would sit down in a big circle in the, in the city square and have a conversation about whatever was, you know, whatever mattered to them. And some of those were really kind of abstract or philosophical, philosophical, some of them were. Um, sort of about what the government is doing and what policies are and some of it was very practical about like we've got this little village how do we make sure people are safe and that they're fed and they've got shelter and all of of these different issues across this massive different scale uh, were being discussed by a large group of people who started out being strangers and over time started to weave a collective identity together and build a collective position on yeah what's happening in the world and what do we think about it and what are we doing and that whole process was so transformative. It's really, really difficult for me to explain to someone who hasn't been through something like that, uh, what kind of impact they had on me. And it, and it was just a, it's kind of like listening boot camp, mm. you know, like, <laughs> um, because we, we did most of our organizing through consensus process. That's just really about, you've got to listen to all the different perspectives and do a kind of, um, creative synergy to try and come up with proposals that satisfy everyone you know so now that I've heard all of these different perspectives on yeah how do we how do we feed people for instance or like uh, wh- what are we what are we going to say next time the news cameras come down you know like that that's a kind of question that we could spend 3 or 4 hours talking about and and try to come to a consensus position like okay well, it sounds like based on what you're saying it's really important that we Represents such and such point, you know, and, and there's such a, uh, extraordinary creativity involved in, in, in creating proposals that satisfy this diverse large group of people. And that, um, yeah, I just feel like I learned a huge amount mm. that up until, basically up until I did that process, a sustained process of deliberation uh, where I felt like I had skin in the game and I was participating with others that had skin in the game. Until I'd done that, I was basically treating other people in the world as kind of as avatars, you know, like not as real people. NPCs. That's I've
0: heard the remote too.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the non playing characters, right? <laughs> like, um I had this implicitly I had a, a a way of understanding the world, which is like, okay, why is it that the world looks like it's in trouble? It's because people are evil or people are stupid. That's, you know, that's basically implicitly the, the argument that I was running. And if people were less evil or more smart, we wouldn't be in this mess. And, um, when I actually got to meet all of these different kinds of people and really understand their values and their experiences, where they're coming from, why do they have the perspective they do it's like, wow, I can't, I can't find the evil ones and I can't find the stupid ones. You know, it's like people just have really different life experience. And so they've got different, uh, different ways of seeing the world for good reasons. Generally and so that really like that formed a a, a kind of political conscious consciousness for me, um, which, which emerged through practice, you know, it didn't come from reading some leftist text or something, but it did have a lot of leftist values in it, Mm. you know, like it really did. Um, it did make me much more considerate of the experiences of people who are much less privileged than me, for instance, you know? So like, up until that point, I really didn't pay any attention to feminism. And then listening to the experiences of women and people with other marginalized genders and hearing about what it was like for them on a day-to-day basis and what concerns they had and why it's like, wow, okay, that really is important. That's like a really important part of society. Um, whether you're being harassed and assaulted because of because of your gender. Like that's really important. And I could easily just keep going through life, ignoring that if I was only paying attention to myself and yeah, treating other people like NPCs, Um, but being forced to reckon with their actual lived experience that, wow, okay, we need to, we need to be considerate. We need to, we need to make sure that we're not, you know, I need to make sure that I'm not just attending to my own needs, but also my neighbors and, and, and other people in my society. So that whole process, yeah, made me much more compassionate. I think and much more concerned about, Collective well-being and and uh, how are other people doing? And um, I guess in a sense, in some way, it made me much more humble about my own perspective. In another way, it made me much more confident because I had a lot of practice um, making arguments in public and, and speaking. And so now I feel really comfortable speaking. But um, it made me it made me recognize that I just have a very small perspective, and and every human has a small perspective, and that uh, collectively we can. With the right kind of process, the right kind of culture, and the right contextual setting, you can bring a lot of limited individuals together and come up with a collective intelligence which is really superhuman, mm-hmm. super compassionate, super intelligent. Um, so that that I still, yeah, i I completely commit to those and those ideas and values and and I'm not letting go of that anytime soon,
0: yeah um there's a few points that I want to i guess run off on there. One is just, the the collective intelligence uh um piece that you just mentioned um that's something that i think has become very uh so obvious in this time in this time of coronavirus that the the hive mind perhaps you know through through twitter or other social media platforms can um figure out what's going on far faster than uh the established uh institutions let's say um, I just remember reading stuff on, perhaps it's just cause I follow, you know, some people who are more clued in to this, like or who are more, um, who are used to dealing with the risks. So like the venture capital community and, you know, the, the man who is to Taleb and the role that he plays, um, which is, you know, a story in, in of itself. But, um, it's very, I think it's very interesting that, um, just seeing the, the, the hive uh, for lack of a better term, um come together and coordinate and really figure out what's going on, even though these systems aren't made, aren't optimized for that. Like Twitter is not optimized for, for sense-making, but it seems to, it, se- it seems to work. So, uh, the, I guess what the good thing is, um, perhaps skipping forward a little bit in our conversation is that a lot of the tools that we need to kind of come to grips with what's going on and then bring about action are already halfway there. We just need to kind of, uh, um, update them a little bit. Um, but I guess there's the one, the one part that I really wanted to, um, just touch on or, uh, go deeper on because it relates to what you're up to now is the, um, what you're talking, what you're talking about is the, how relating to other people and doing so like to really listening to them was foundational in your growth. And I've seen you write elsewhere that, um, it's the crisis that we live in today is in uh, a large part an issue of our ability to relate to one another, but also the systems which were embedded within the you know the neighborhoods, the countries, and also just the biosphere. Um, so, do you want to talk uh, a little a little bit about that? I think this was in perhaps your the micro solidarity piece or something like. What is the crisis of uh, relationality or relationship? Um and mm. how have you found that by focusing on relationships a lot of the other issues sort of just sort themselves out? Mm.
1: Yeah, that's sort of difficult to answer. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Apologies. Um
1: Well, I think I think there's kind of um there's a way of looking at the world where you you identify a problem. Um so like, okay, maybe there's a problem there's a guy outside sleeping in his car because he doesn't have a house to live in. Um, and you could, maybe you could get to know that guy and help him out and get him into a house or something. But then you realize, wait, there's another guy down the street, you know, and, um, you can sort of address a problem as you see it, or you can seek for deeper causes and, and go, well, what, what's the dynamic that led to this situation? And I think we have, yeah, pretty, um, there's like a rich history of lots of people looking for what are the deepest underlying problems? You know, um, like what are these, what are the the deepest functions that are generating all of the different dynamics that we see? And can we, can we come up with like super powerful heuristics that explain like, yeah, you know, like a, a, an Oak tree starts out as an acorn and it doesn't have that much information in it, but it turns into this massive thing. Like are there, can we articulate what are the attributes of, um, some of these seeds that then produce this complex emergent societies that we live in. And, and I think it's interesting to, yeah, to, to hold lots of these different perspectives. So some people, for instance, they'll say, um, you know, the kind of, uh, my sort of lefty friends that I spend a lot of time with, basically they'll have an analysis, which is that you've got, um, capitalism and and the sort of class dynamics there, and you've got patriarchy and the sexist dynamics there, and you've got colonialism and the racist dynamics there. And those three kind of interlocking systems basically generate everything that we see. And we need a different system, uh, that, that replaces each of those three dimensions, like, I think that's a useful frame. I don't think it's the only one, but I think that's quite useful to interpret. Like, mm-hmm. um,
0: Well, going back to what you were saying before about the wisdom of the crowds, right? It's the same with categories, with con- concepts, right? Like some concepts, like we have concepts because they map onto reality to a certain degree, right? But it's when we use them all together. Um, and use multiple concepts to analyze a problem that we actually really get to understand it um, more deeply. So, you know, the the patriarchy, like the patriarchy, capitalism, they all make some sense, right? But they aren't 100% descriptive of what's going on. Um, And I think that's something that we kind of don't really think about too much. We think that They are these entities that are hundred percent legitimate. Like capitalism is this thing that you can kind of point at and it's the same in everyone's minds, which it is definitely not from my conversations (laughs) with people. I would love for someone to tell me what capitalism is because I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so they are very useful lenses, right? Um, And in the same way that I think now looking back on my upbringing in the church, I think the story of, of God and Christianity and faith and religion, all that. Like, I think that's a really useful lens and, um, and it it helps people make ethical choices and to be, to bring out the better parts of themselves. Like it can be used that way. Um, but I, I, I wanted to, you know, the reason I couldn't stay in that church was because I said that's just a lens and you can take those glasses off sometimes and, and you're still, you're still a legitimate human being. And that was inadmissible. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess basically what I'm trying to say is that there are lots of different lens, lenses for understanding what are the root problems in the world, what are the root causes of stuff. And the one that I'm most drawn to at the moment is, um, basically I'm inheriting from Riane Eisler, who's, I just think such a brilliant theorist and, and somehow, I mean, she's very influential, but also somehow overlooked in a sense, or, or like, she's kind of, I guess, coming from a second wave feminism and, now everyone's into third or fourth wave feminism. And I'm like, yeah, can we, can we just go go back to that? But there, I don't think we fully got the point before we moved on. And her point is, um, looking at what, what do the very small scales of human relationship have in common with the very large scale? Uh, so like, what does the Holocaust have in common with child rearing and, um, and gender dynamics within a family and, she's articulated what she calls the um biocultural domination partnership lens and uses that lens to interrogate each relationship and saying like within a family say between say you've got a husband and wife and some kids so is the husband and wife relating to each other in a in a domination submission posture or in a partnership posture you know like is one like the way I was raised, the man is the head of the household. So it's like, to my view, like a dominant posture, or is it like a partnership between two equals? And likewise, the relationship between the parents and the children are the parents in a, in a dominating punishing position, or are they in a nurturing partnering position with the kids? Like that, that essential, uh, that, that, I mean, I've named that as a binary, but it's a spectrum. She calls it a spectrum, you know? So it's like, you can be more or less to one side or the other of that spectrum. And the way that that shows up in families affects the way your society looks. So, um, part of how she explains the Holocaust is that there was a tradition of child rearing at that time, which was extremely authoritarian and, and domineering that then produces characters like Hitler and, and then having the head of state being extremely domineering and authoritarian encourages more of that behavior in families. You know, so it's this 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 loop between the large scale and the small scale. And she gives really, histor- uh, you know, I think quite compelling historical examples of societies that were organised on partnership terms, uh, where where people are relating to each other based on linking rather than ranking. You know, so we're, we're, um, affiliating with each other and, 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 and finding opportunities to connect and exchange rather than ranking in a competitive chart of like, who's the strongest, who's the fastest, who's the richest, who's the most brutal. Um, and, and what I get from her is that like, if we want to have a society, which is less about a hierarchical ranking system and more about an affiliative linking system, some of that work happens in our relationships in our families and in our interactions with our friends and colleagues and that that's the part that i'm most drawn to is like how do we shift at the very small scale how do we start prototyping living in this futuristic society which is liberated and, and compassionate and caring can we can i prototype that in my house or in my neighborhood and maybe the process of um learning how to relate to people in that way will give me some insights about yeah, how institutions should be redesigned or what policy should look like or what technology we need.
0: Yeah. Um, that theme, um, I've, I've heard you in a, in a number of uh, podcasts, um, you know, there's we're at this point in time where a lot of people are thinking and talking about reimagining societies and civilizations and all that. And we're all kind of in the drafting stages and there's a lot of talk going on. Um, but you're saying the talk is great. We know what the uh, the the goal may be, but we have absolutely no idea if it's actually feasible. Um, Perhaps just try to act. Like you've got a very, very strong bias to action, which I uh, admire because it's just, I mean, it's inherently pragmatic and practical, right? It's like, (laughs) it doesn't matter how wonderful your solution is on paper. If it doesn't work in the real world, it doesn't work. And for things to exist at the scales at which we need them to, like at the global scale, that cannot be imposed down because it just won't work so we need these um these grassroots um emergent civilizations to to take shape and i guess you're in the the process of exploring what these um micro communities might look like and how they would contribute to that greater whole would i be right in saying that
1: yeah and um Part of it is about, yeah, establishing these micro communities in the hopes that they might, you know, um, I could imagine that they kind of federate and create this distributed, uh, you know, kind of a, non, a non-state kind of nation or something like I could yeah. dream about that. Um, but even well before that stage, there's just there are a lot of people who are committed to a life of contribution, you know, they want to, they want to make a positive difference in the world and a lot of them are isolated and they're not resourced very well. And they're operating in a, in a, yeah, like a a pretty fragile, um, posture, you know, like that they're, that they're going against the flow and they don't have tons of support. And I just want to get those people to be plugged into a system where they are, they, they experience that, you know, belonging, that psychological, that deep psychological need of belonging, of being seen, being heard, feeling like you're part of something that's meaningful and and people care about you and they're going to notice when you don't show up and they're going to check in with you and that sort of thing, as well as the practical support that someone's going to, um, yeah, someone's going to care if you lose your job and they're going to help you strategize and, and, um, and they're going to loan you money or they're going to find opportunities where you can collaborate to help Uh with your livelihood as well. Like, I think if we can get more of these sort of, you know, Change maker types; these people that are committed to making positive difference. If they could be more supported, uh, we're more likely to get to a positive future, regardless of if it looks anything like what I have in mind. You yeah. know, just think: if they're more supported, probably good stuff will happen.
0: Yeah. So, how how does that take shape um, in the world at the moment? I know that this is sort of what uh, you do with uh, Inspiral.
1: Yeah. So, Inspiral is is the, um, I guess it's my prototype that I'm looking at. Of like, I want more of those things to happen. So the part of my introduction that I skipped was like between Occupy and Lumio, uh there's Inspiral. And and Lumio being the small team of like started with six people. Um but it started inside of a bigger thing called Inspiral, which was like uh, it's always fluctuated between one, two hundred people. And that larger container, that community, that network. Of a couple hundred people is the most extraordinary incubator for things like Lumio to happen. So, like, it's yeah, um, a network of people who are committed to doing meaningful work in the world and are committed to supporting each other and whatever that support looks like. You know, it's very context dependent and relation relationship dependent. But we're um, intentionally cultivating relationships of high trust. So it's like it's not very easy to get in. And, um, we have, yeah, we have like quite explicit norms about what it's like to be in this community and what the expectations are and how do we make decisions and govern ourselves and so on. And then within that trusted container, we do a lot of experimentation with like money, for instance, like how, um, people could all contribute a little part of their income to a, to a collective fund. And then how, 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 would we like to allocate this money and what kind of projects do we want to fund? We do experiments like that. And we also do a lot of experiments with, with governance. So what if we have this, you know, we now have a shared brand, which is reasonably valuable. You know, it's known all around the world and we have no one in charge. We've got 200 people that all have some permission to use that brand It's say, like, well, how are we going to make that safe and accountable and, and sensible? Like how do we make sure that that, uh, that people use that brand and, and maintain the quality of it and don't, <laughs> don't trash it. You know, like that's a tricky governance challenge to figure out. And so we've done a lot of experiments to, to um, just, to, we kind of, I think we kind of invent problems that are interesting to solve and they're interesting to solve because it's like, well, how do we prototype the organization of the future where nobody's the boss? That's, that's so much of what's going on for me is it's like, can we come together as collectives because collectives have a lot more impact than individuals, Uh, but bypass a lot of the downsides of traditional hierarchy where you have concentration of power and yeah, these kind of coercive dynamics and um, alienation between, you know, increasing polarization between who who has power and who who doesn't like, can we organize collectives that don't suffer from those pitfalls? And it's a very messy experimental process, but that's what we've been doing uh, for the last decade or more. And it's just been absolutely essential to my development as a person. Like it's been the context in which I've done most of my growing up, I think. And it's been essential to Lumio as an organization to have this bigger context where it's kind of like the extended family who, who care when things are getting tough, they'll come in and help um, and they'll share lessons and opportunities. And, um, it, and I just think it, it made me and it made Lumio so much more resilient and so much more likely to succeed than if, if I was trying to operate on my own. And so, yeah, the the puzzle now is like, how do we make more in spirals? How do we make more of these trusted communities where people can commit themselves to purpose and, and receive a lot of support in the process. And that support is flowing in a mutual way, you know, that it's in a peer to peer way. It's not coming from Mm. some central source of of wealth or um, someone setting the direction, but that it's just, we're just sharing whatever spare resources that we have with each other and using that to like bootstrap and create more resilience.
0: So I guess with, I'm assuming with Spiral that you're not, not everyone is co-located, right? You're spread across the world. So how have you found, um, how have you, uh, brought about very deep connections, um, connections where you trust the people that you're working with, uh, when you don't see people face to face and you're just, you know, commuting, uh, communicating digitally. Mm.
1: There is definitely a, there has been a um, critically important face-to-face component and uh, we are globally distributed, but really still there is a home base in New Zealand and there's a, an essential kind of pillar of our community, which is about the way that we gather. And we have, um, especially especially in the summertime in New Zealand, we have a big gathering once a year and uh, there's also smaller gatherings at other points, but that big gathering every year, the, the summer well, we used to call it summer retreat. Now we call it summer festival because it's gotten more ecstatic. But, (laughs) um, that space of connection, I think has been just, just absolutely essential and critical to yeah. How we've cultivated that level of trust. Um, and then the other dimension is that we are, we, it's a network that you join by invitation, you know? So it's like, there's a, there's a kind of social filtering process where, people who are some of us are empowered to make these invitations, people that have been around for a long time that are, yeah, they're well-known within the community that they have a high degree of commitment and accountability. They're the ones that are inviting new people to join. And so there's a pretty sophisticated method of like filtering out. Do we trust this person to jump in and participate in our governance decisions and our, and our shared resources and all that sort of thing. So it's like being invited in is a really quite a gesture of trust um, and then we have graduated stages of higher and higher trust where you, you kind of gain more access to more stuff as you, as you've been participating more. So there's like a reasonably sophisticated system for yeah, making sure that people, we don't just take some random person and say, yeah, jump in. You know, like that was, that was the kind of one of the lessons from Occupy, right? Like there's no front door at Occupy. It was a public space. So anyone could jump in and participate. And there's some real amazing benefits of, of allowing everyone and being accessible to anyone. Um but there's also some real limitations because someone could be when you invite just a random person uh, they don't have to have any commitment. they can just say things because they're thinking about them, not because they necessarily have any skin in the game they yeah. might not be committed to the place at all.
0: Kind of makes me think of um the extinction rebellion movement because anyone can say they're from extinction rebellion and do stuff that, uh, some people may act in ways that um, a lot of the others may not agree with and could tarnish the brand, which I think has happened. Um, I think the movement's a great idea. Don't get me wrong. Um, we absolutely need something like that, but I'm just saying that that is something that could happen. If there's no real membership, um, these things can really get, uh, these, these brands for lack of a better term can get, uh, sullied. Um, so the person to person, uh, component of this sort of stuff is absolutely necessary. Um, from what I'm at least in part. part. We don't know. We don't know. So this is, this is,
1: I'm I'm glad you said that because I started this year with a plan, which I actually published saying this is what I'm going to focus on this year for my community building work. And um, we've got these four different gatherings for these four different communities. And and then of course, pandemic (laughs) kicks in and (laughs) gatherings, are uh, um, kind of like it's the wrong time, you know, to be doing big events with people. And so we have pivoted and said, can we do some of this community building work without doing the gatherings? And it's it, it, we're still in the experiment. We're still finding out, you know, it's only been a couple of months, but um, there's definitely one of the communities that feels like it's really lost a lot of energy because we don't have the face-to-face component. And I don't know if we're going to get through it or if this is, this is going to be the thing that just like that initial energy is going to expire because we didn't get together. I don't know. But there's another one that I'm involved in where, We've just been putting a lot of energy into creating spaces online, which feel uh, like the 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 context is oriented towards trust and intimacy and vulnerability and authenticity. And it feels successful. It feels that we actually are cultivating meaningful relationships. And when we finally do get to get together face to face, it's going to be really exciting. You know, like that. Um, it's taking. It's it's very laborious to have you know, so we've got, I think four groups now and each group is five or six people. And we've been facilitating those people to get to know each other and to get deeper into relationship with each other. Um, it's like a painstaking process week after week of like cultivating this thing online where people on calls, you know, so it's not tech space. Yeah, it's, I was
0: going to ask like, how are you facilitating these things? Because I couldn't imagine just being on a forum, you know, and feeling a deep sense of belonging and interconnectedness. Like someone liked my my posts like, oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, even that text layer though, you know, so like my experience on Twitter is there is a kind of, um, there is this kind of cloud, which feels like I know some of these people, they feel like they're becoming my friends. Yeah. And then I could imagine inviting some of them to a video call and having some facilitated process and then deepening, you yeah. know? So it's like, we've got that first kind of awareness of each other and then using some, some process and by process, I mean, you know, like, in Zoom, you can make breakout groups, so you can pe- put people into little. Okay, we have a, a, a one-to-one for ten minutes, and there's these three questions, and you know, yep. take, take, each take turns to answer these three questions, and and it's not that hard to engineer those questions so that they allow people to step more and more into an authentic expression of themselves, and and yeah, allow people to kind of come closer to each other and encounter each other. So it can be done without having the physical gathering, but it just feels like a lot more energy is required mm-hmm. and less payoff than what you can achieve with having people come together for three days.
0: Yeah. I don't, I, I think that that definitely sounds That um, maps onto my experience, but I have had one or two experiences of um, being in big groups uh, where everyone's kind of in sync and you it's like a very embodied, like you you couldn't put your finger on what it is, but there's this deep sense of belonging and of a shared I don't know what what you'd call it, but th- there's something that I do not think can be recreated digitally just by virtue of the fact that a lot of information is being lost and uh, through perhaps through this, uh, through this medium, be it, you know, video or whatever. And I think just being in the same space. And I think we've, there's some research that has shown that uh, people who play sports together or Navy SEALs, they're Rhythms um, sync up their yeah. heart rates and breathing and all and all that sort of stuff. So I'd be very curious to know if that actually happens, you know, across the, the digital divide. You know, if I'm playing a, a game of uh, I don't know Dota or something <laughs> like. Do, do I, do I sink
1: like, up? I think there's a risk that you can, um, there's a risk of bio chauvinism, you know, where you come to this position of like, um, the physical embodied form is the best. And we must, we must we prioritize that experience ahead of any other. And, and I always want to hold the candle for, um, the possibility that we could create experiences that are even more, even more fulfilling and mm-hmm. meaningful than the embodied ones in technical, digital spaces and virtual spaces. I believe it's possible. I mean, like we've been running these programs, what we call the micro solidarity practice program. And it's usually like 20, 25, 30 people. And they'll meet over a series of calls and do a lot of relational practices together. And we had one uh, last week where there was this kind of in-joke that emerged within the, within this temporary group of, um, swaying side to side on zoom. When there was technical glitches, people would sway. And there was a moment with 30 people on my screen and everyone's swaying in sync with each other. And it's silly and it's kind of shallow, but it actually felt it did have a a, a trace of that feeling that you're talking about, that kind of like coherence thing of like, Hey, we're all here. We're all with each other. We're all present to the same moment. We're all like in this when we're, you know, like they they had this, this sense of being, being a, we being an us. Mm. And yeah, it was a narrow little, it felt like, you know, drinking the ocean through a straw, whatever they say, but like, it's, um, it has some promise to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That might, the straw analogy might be a good one because I'm thinking about like this screen in front of me as the straw and what could really unlock that is virtual reality. Um, that's when we may really begin to feel that we, that we are present with everyone else uh, there. If we can, you know, interact and we can see movement and, you know, maybe with some really cool uh, AI and webcams, my avatar face can be animated in real time uh, with my facial movements um, I think that could really help us and just help connect. Um, but there's just, I I see that we have a, this very pressing crisis, uh, you know, the collapse of the biosphere and the, the human problems that it could bring, right. It's not just about the natural systems that support life, um, collapsing, but it's what that could do to the established powers and, um, if everyone's trying to fight for their own, you know, you know, just to save themselves, what that could do. And I feel that we need to kind of fast forward this, um, we we need to speed up how we can actually bring about these really, um, well, these, these local groups that, um, can really get on with one another, create positive local change and do that across the world. Is
1: that yeah, I, I'm not fully convinced about anything that involves speeding up. Like, um, cause that implies, um, yeah, it, it implies that you've got some under that, that your, that your human mind can, can wrap around some kind of projection of what rate change is currently happening and what rate it should be. And if we just t- turned up that dial, then, then we'd have the change that we need. Like I don't really see it that way. Like that was part of, the inspirational part of, of Occupy for me was like, it came out of nowhere. There was no there was no sort of like pre-existing plan or uh, there was no committee organizing that. It's just suddenly in hundreds of cities around the world, there were these camps and people were having a shared experience without anyone telling them to do it. And there was kind of like no... You, it's really hard to identify any signs leading up to that, like where that change came from. It just, it just, the time was right. The conditions were right. The right sort of memes arrived at the right moment. And, and it was quite a significant change for a lot of people. So I now have, um, I really believe in, in basically what do they call it? Punctuated equilibrium. You know, the, the, you can kind of you reach these, these moments in history where everything just changes overnight. Like I do believe that that can happen.
0: And Um, We're living through it now. with the protests in the US, right? I think it was the straw that broke the camel back. The camel's back. I don't think it was people being sick of lockdown. You know, I think people just were sick of seeing the same things repeat time and time again.
1: And and before that as well, you know, just the pandemic, like teaching us about what exponentials actually feel like. You know, it's like imperceptibly gradual and then overwhelmingly sudden, and you don't uh, uh, you don't notice when you've crossed that knee, you know, when it takes that corner until suddenly it's like, well, this is, everything's, everything's different. So I'm, yeah, I'm not really in a go faster mode. I'm actually in a go slower mode. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I, I, am at least oriented towards the possibility that, uh, that a lot of change could manifest from, from pressing pause, you know, that we like find a way to to practice like what I'm trying to do in any conversation is to show up and be an avatar of peace. You know, like, can I, can I just, can I just be here in this present moment and not be frightened or aggressive or craving or aversive, or can I just be, can I just be peace? And it I find it easier to do that. The more I have other people reflecting that back at me, that they're, they're willing to just think, slow down, be with this moment, be present, be compassionate, be caring, think can we ease up? And I, I think that's a I think there's a huge amount of potential energy in the act of pausing, you know, like just <sighs> taking that breath. And that doesn't have to that's the opposite of accelerating for me. Yeah. I've been uh, threatening for a while to start a, um, like a startup decelerator. (laughs) Get all these innovation people and put them in New Zealand somewhere and say like, your job is just to slow down, just to like inquire into your deeper motivations, just to cultivate meaningful relationships, like just to slow down on all this action that you think you need to be executing. at It'll it'll probably
0: create more useful or successful startups because I think a lot of startups fail because the founders just don't get on, right? So they actually took some time to just... Figure out how to coexist and solve problems. Um, you know, solve interrelational problems. Like, not the not the business problems. I think the business problems are the easy problems, right? It's like dealing with the people. That, that's ah, uh, that's where the real challenge lies. Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point about like slowing down and uh, how it might be. Well, I guess it. In in many ways, it's m- maybe necessary to actually cultivating these deep uh, relationships. When I was saying speeding up, I was just thinking like the trend that we're on. Um, for one, we shouldn't even believe the uh, the stats or the uh, the, pr- the predictions, right? Because all all our models are wrong, and we have no idea about how these things work. Like right? we we have no idea how the climate's gonna gonna work. We, these are just like numbers. We have this affinity to like, oh, if it's on the paper, if it's on the spreadsheet. It's true, you know. I don't know what that bias is called, but it's definitely real. Um, so we should be being we should be hyper conservative where these things are concerned because we are observing some things like, you know, forty percent of insect species have are threatened with extinction based on their um, I can't remember what it was, but they're threatened with extinction. A lot of animals are threatened with extinction, and we are. We know that we're embedded within the web of life, so we should really pull back. So I like what you say about pausing. Right to me, the equivalent of speeding up this movement would be pausing because as long as we can take care of our basic needs. Um, and when I say our basic needs, I mean, the population of the earth, perhaps they may not be able to, I don't know, go on helicopter rides or or something, some really energy intensive, um, thing that's bad for the world. As long as we can all survive, um, basically what we're doing with the coronavirus, um, but perhaps a little bit more extreme, um, then I think that would be okay. So it's like, how do we, move towards how do we accelerate the move towards that, which would be good for all of life is kind of my question. And I see it as in a large part based on groups of people doing things like protesting or, but not just protesting, but also like, this is something that I'm we've seen with, um, uh, the extinction rebellion. There's a lot of energy and uh, anger in a way, but we don't quite have the channels through which we can channel, uh, that we can channel those feelings into productive things like actual actions as, as, or I wouldn't say actions, but acts of creation, right? Um, the first step is mobilizing, but I think we need the, we need to take that energy and then actually create, uh, the new institutions and organizations that will actually deliver us into this, into this new world. Um I'm sorry I've just ranted away there. I don't really know where I'm at. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I could rant back, you know, but I, I wonder um, no, well I wonder if, if there are some if there's some pressing questions, you know, like if you think about um yeah, like what's what's happening in your life and what um what choices are in front of you. Like are there are there things closer to, you know, because it's it's quite easy to have opinions about extinction rebellion, you know, and I'm wondering like what's more close to your actual environment. That would be interesting to talk about.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, something that I, I think struggle with and I think a lot of people struggle with, uh, particularly, you know, those who are very well aware of the current state of things is the, um, having to just do the, what people term the game a life, you know, um, Mm. go to work, make your income, uh, pay off, your debts or, you know, just play the game that has been given to us for the past century or two. Right. And then there's the, the crisis that we, uh, that we hear about all all the time. You know, I, I wake up, I brush my teeth, I have my coffee, I go to work on the way to work. I see that, Oh my God, the continent is on fire. Oh, look, there's this, all this shit's going down. And then I'm like, Oh, well back to work. And then I just go through my day and then I go home and I think, Oh, well, we should really be working on solving these problems. Right. And, that kind of just keeps on going and um there are opportunities for where people can really get involved in ways of trying to i guess move the needle but there's this i guess inertia that i think a lot of us have or perhaps it's a fear in a way of like well could i just quit my job and really go hard on on all of this and i think for a lot of people um the answer is just a flat note because they've got kids, they've got people relying on them. Um, I think the perpetuation of a lot of what we see uh, of a lot of the problems that we have is just that people have responsibilities and they need to feed their families and they, they need to, to do certain things. And they actually don't quite have the freedom to really act in ways that are uh, in coherence with, I would say, you know, their integrity. And I think that's causing quite a a problem or a like a, a crisis, and I think people are turning to social media or Netflix and video games to completely dissociate from the um the feeling of I I I the words I've been trying to get the word for the past five minutes, but it's not there. Um, <laughs> but they're just distracting rather than actually facing up to the the um. Yeah, the word's not there. Anyway, um, so I I feel that I I don't know how we can, like, what's the good way to get past that? I mean, a part of this, what you mentioned with Inspiral is it's a way out for some people, right? Like if we have these communities where people are actually empowered to work every day on things that the world needs and to to enact the change that the world needs, then it's the best of all worlds, right? But um, we just need to, we need a lot more of those things.
1: There's plenty of people at Inspiral that, um, are doing jobs that don't feel super inspiring. You know, that they're, they're working in some, um, big old organization and they, they haven't fully inhabited this new futuristic game B, you know, way of living or something. Um, so it's not like an all or nothing thing where you have to go from, I'm doing this Yeah, like I'm distracting myself or I'm plugged into this web of obligations, which I can't escape. And then I break, but like I cut, (laughs) I quit all of that. And then I'm in this new world. Like that, yeah, that is very risky and I wouldn't recommend it to most people. Um, but there's a, I think there's a very long transition that's available. And one of the first steps is, uh, it's this process of like coming to terms with my own, uh, fear and grief and also my own, inspiration and ambition and vision and, and possibility and all, and both of those things are inaccessible when I'm in this distracting mode, you know, when it's like, ah, I feel like, yeah, I've got these obligations, which take up most of my brain and most of my time. And yeah, I get these random kind of decontextualized images coming through social media of things to be terrified about. I don't really have the space to think about it. I'll just kind of try and clamp that down and try and learn how do I cope? You know, like I'm just trying to cope. Um, And that's a, you know, people, people find coping strategies because that's what they need. And what I'd be looking for is like, how can, what are some baby steps? What are some first steps in the direction of like removing that cope, removing that uh, anesthetism, you know, like uh, of, of turning up the sensitivity a little bit, both to the, the fear and to the possibility and I can't really do that on my own. I have to do that in company. I need to find other people that are, you know, first I need to be, my process was, this was kind of a lot, a lot what happened at Occupy. I was like meeting other people who also, I mean, in 2011 at Occupy, it was the first time I said out loud that I'm fearful of the collapse of human habitat. You know, like this whole, we talk about the sixth mass extinction or the biological collapse, the biosphere collapse. it's like, that's our habitat, you know, this is not like, it's not like, Oh, the natural world out there separate from humans. Is that threat? No, no. (laughs) We are part of that system and it's our habitat It's where we live and, and it's disintegrating. Um, and I'm fearful that we're extinguishing our habitat. There's a genuine threat of like massive loss of life, potentially even extinction for humans. Like I only said that out loud because someone else did it first, you know, someone else gave me the courage to say that because they they were more articulate than me and I had these private thoughts that I'd been carrying around for, I don't know how long. And then I had an outlet to say them and to meet other people that shared that, that fear. And it's not just the fear of the collapse. It's the fear of, Hey, it seems like all the systems that we've got are not equipped to deal with this level of problem. Um, and actually we seem to be accelerating in the wrong direction. (laughs) It's like, there's a lot of depth to that fear and, definitely for me, the first step was to, to be allowed to say it, to be a, to, to allow that part of myself, to allow that, um, Hey, there's all these thoughts going on in here and all these feelings that are going on in here. And I just need to like kind of spew them out. I just need to get them out. And I don't know what's the right thing to say. I don't know if I'm jumping to conclusions or being needlessly nihilistic or pessimistic. Like I just need to express this stuff. And on the other side of that expression of grief and fear, was the possibility of hope and the possibility of uh, purpose, you know like it was only by going through that dark territory that I got to the point of like ah, I've got a part to play here like there's this is a big complex system, it's overwhelming but actually I can make a small con- contribution over here that is um, I've got some specific gifts. I've got some talents and, and, and I can exercise those talents in service of a better world. I don't know if we're going to get there, but if I just work on that part, it helps me balance out that equation of the fear and the grief. You know, it's like, okay, well, things could go horribly wrong. I think some unknown probability of, of social collapse and human extinction. I don't know what the numbers are. I think the probability is getting more and more intense, unfortunately. But so long as I'm, I feel like I'm committed to something meaningful and I've got people that are doing it with me, um, I can, I can cope. And it's a, it's a more, I think a proactive kind of coping than, than the one of just tuning out. And that, that could, it could for years, that could just be conversation. Maybe that's what people need, you know, like just having spaces where they can talk about these things and feel through these things before they actually get to the point of like, okay, now the circumstances of my life have changed enough that I can, I can meaningfully contribute to something proactively and
0: different how have you um how do you build good groups like it's all well and good to bring people together but how have you found what works when it comes to uh facilitating um connection and what are the commonalities across contexts because what will work in one culture may not work in another but we're all human beings um what have you found that actually does seem to work uh, regardless of of uh, of the context
1: yeah, uh, <laughs> that's such a big question, eh? Um, so uh, my preferred method is to to treat it like a fermentation, you know, like a sourdough or a kombucha or something, a yogurt. Like, how do you make good yogurt? Is you start with some yogurt? <laughs> how do you make good sourdough? You start with some. Sa- you need a starter to you know you take you take some um it, uh, this culture this intense kind of fermenting uh, active living burping gassy uh, starter culture and then you mix it in with fresh ingredients and um and kind of reproduce and extend that culture into a bigger loaf <clears throat> that's for me the 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 best way to start a group is to take a couple of people a couple of relationships that already are going very well that already have some this is about, you know, basically this is about lineage and about mm. having elders and having people that actually have some experience and, um, not just trying to bootstrap from nowhere, but having some kind of context and saying like, ah, oh, well these, you know, I've had a great relationship with these four people who've come, you know, we've done this world trip together or whatever. You, you, you've got some experience of we've, we seem to have figured out some ways of relating that work and use that as the crystal that's the seed and then invite more people into that set of relationships that already work. So like it might just be a relationship between two people that has, um, yeah, a high degree of harmony and that has a lot of capacity. And then you invite three or four other people to share in that relationship. That's one way to do it, you know, like to, to find an elder, to find someone who's got a lot of experience and say like, can you help us get started and what do we need to be paying attention to? And, and because it's like, I can tell you some, some, I can sort of write the textbook and say, these are the things that you need in your group. But so much of what you need is subtextual, you know, like it's not, it's not the stuff that I can just explicitly tell you it's, it's these moment by moment gestures that, uh, help people to settle and feel like they're part of something and that they're being heard and that they matter. Like a lot of the stuff is happening through physical gesture and, uh, you know, yeah. the way that you maintain eye contact or don't, you know, those sorts of factors. So that's one, That's one answer, which is like find someone who knows what they're doing and orient around them. Um, then you've got the problem of like, okay, but are we going to put them on a a pedestal and treat them as the guru? Like, no, don't go that way either. So that comes with its own challenges. And then the other approach is more like, I think it's probably more relevant to most people is that they don't have that elder. They don't have this person where they're like, Oh, I can orient around them. Um, then there's this bootstrapping practice. And that's been what I've been, uh, yeah. You know, you, you asked like, what are these common commonalities that emerge? That's what I've been putting a lot of research into is discovering many different groups that are trying to organize in a peer to peer horizontal, you know, uh, in a, in a, set of relationships of mutual aid rather than a top-down control system, uh, meeting with lots of these groups and saying like, what do you all have in common? What are the struggles that, that tend to trip you up? What are the big obstacles in the path? And and I've seen a lot of commonality across, across very different contexts. And that's what I've been collecting as what I call the patterns for decentralized organization. And this is my unfinished book, which is available online. Um, and I love that
0: unfinished. So like, can you just talk for a minute about that? Like it's, you're in the process of writing it, but it's public.
1: Yeah. Well, it's just, I, I feel like a, a very accomplished blog post writer. Like I really know how to take an idea and and, and, and put it into a package of 2,000 words or 5,000 words and, and get that out and have it be meaningful and people recognize something and they get some meaning from it. Um, but that's quite a different skill from writing a book. And I don't really know how to write a book, but I know I've got at least a book's worth of information that people want to know about. And so I've started the process and written the first draft and published that and said, at least, at least I'll get this out of the way because um, this is a start <laughs> and, and I hope to improve it with the feedback of readers. And at some point I'm hoping that I'm, I'm going to develop book writing skills and then I'll come back and like actually flesh out this draft and make it great. And I don't know when it's going to happen, but in the meantime, like here's the, the main ideas are there. It's just kind of messy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And if someone wants to give you a, you know, a million dollar, uh what's it called the publishing fee you know then they can go and check it out to, to see if they, they want to put the money down <laughs> so yeah, Joe, pretty awesome.
1: it's, it's, it's pretty awesome that you know i've sold it a few hundred times um and it's not finished so it's like okay oh, well cool. that's it's very encouraging you know it's yeah. so like every every week another one another one or two three people buy it i was like okay this it does put this pressure on me to like okay you're gonna have to at some point sit down and finish that thing mm. so that's good um but that has been a project of identifying. Yeah. What are the common patterns? What, what tends to go wrong and what, what kind of solutions have people tried. And so this is stuff like you need to have, you need to decide how you decide. Like if you're going to be a group at some point, you're going to have to make decisions. And what I've seen works really well is when a group has what we call a decision protocol, like that, If you're in this scenario, we use this method for making decisions. Sometimes, you you know, there's some kind of decisions where you need consensus and you really need to do the slow process of building a strong agreement from everyone. There's other types of decisions where you can just execute on your own and you don't need to seek anyone's advice. And there are other scenarios, which are somewhere in between and kind of formalizing that at some stage is quite important for a group that's going to go the distance. Uh, There's another one about conflict will emerge at some stage. You're going to piss each other off. And before you get to that stage, it's really important that you've agreed what's going to happen. <laughs> you know that that you have anticipated that conflict may happen, and you've got some kind of process that you've all agreed to that you're willing to kind of submit yourself to that process when things get tough. Um, accountability. You know, like a lot of the stuff, it's it's independent. I feel like I'm independently discovering what Eleanor Ostrom wrote in in her um, you know the eight uh, eight principles of commons commons management. Um, so like, there's a thing around accountability. Like you, 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 if you create a system where people are sharing and and sharing the management of a common resource, you're inevitably going to get free riders. You know, it's just the way human incentives work that people will try and take stuff without, um, without contributing, unless there's some kind of social pressure that keeps them accountable. So you need to have a system, which is like anticipating that free riders could emerge and, um, supporting them in a you know constructive way to to be good citizens, to be good participants in the comments, and to make sure that they're contributing at least as much as they're taking. So there's a bunch of these kind of patterns that um, that we've identified. So that would be the other place to start. You know, like mm-hmm. if you don't have um, this kind of lineage that you can lean on and say, oh, this is a great thing and I just want to take a part of that and reproduce it. Um, the other approach is to, yeah, read the book or like we've got an online course now as well, which you can take take the course and at least that will give you the priorities, like these are the things that you should be watching out for, um, as your group matures, make sure you've got a decision process. Make sure you've got a conflict process. Make sure you've got, you know, like these kind of, uh, individual points, but you've got to, I think, I think the right organizational structure is unique to the group, you know, like it's unique to your context, your relationships, your intentions, your history, all that sort of stuff. So I can't tell you what the right structure is, but I can say like, these are the things that tend to go wrong. So make sure you're attending to those.
0: Yeah. Um, you brought up something at the beginning um, that I think is really important, um, and it's this notion of intergenerational uh, breakdown. Um, how we don't really have, or in in a lot of groups, there's no representation of people at different age groups, and that uh, particularly older generations can provide a, a hell of a lot of wisdom in uh, you know a variety of domains. Um, do you just can, can you talk uh, on that, and what are your observations and perhaps what have you seen in organizations where everyone's the same age compared to when there's just quite a, you know, a collection of, of age ranges.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think that, uh, that our team with Lumio survived through the, yeah, the conflicts and challenges of being a new team was one of our team members, uh, I, I, I regarded it as an elder, you know, someone that had, had been there before or someone that I, um, kind of, in, a, in a way, it's kind of like the first mentor that I recognize I may have had other mentors earlier than that, but I don't really, haven't can't really put my finger on, but this one, Vivian she um so she was, yeah, I don't know, a generation older than me, uh, or maybe even more and I could see something about the course of her life that I wanted to emulate, you know? So like she had this, uh, radical activism past really doing edgy stuff. Um, and, and, and then she matured into working in organizations and did some really impressive, um, social enterprises and some work with big NGOs in New Zealand and, um, and developed, yeah. She, I, I feel like she kind of like developed a certain place in society, which was making a really meaningful contribution and had some real influence. And, uh, and then she wanted to join the team, you know, like when we were starting out she was excited about joining a tech company and, um, being one of the participants there and, and to have someone that I could recognize is that, okay, you have some of the same values as me. You're doing this activism thing as well. So I recognize you and I trust you. And also, You've been around the block a few times, like you've been through a whole bunch of organizations, you've started stuff, you've failed and tried again. Um she had so much wisdom. So, like I said about, you know, like you need a conflict resolution policy before you have the conflict. She knew that. <laughs> I didn't. And um and and she helped us, you know, get that in place before we needed it. And and she anticipated a lot of those kind of needs, I think, and helped us pay attention while we had the good relationships to establish some of these processes, which then helped us navigate when things got tough. So that's one example where I think having someone with more life experience that I could recognize and that I looked up to and wanted to be more like them, um, made a huge difference. And also, you know, like there's a dimension of that where, um, I think I had a sort of, there's a whole phase where I had a really immature attitude towards money maybe you see this in in some expressions of activism as well. It's like kind of like money is bad. money is evil. Um, we should repel money. And that was another thing that I got from Vivian was like, she, I thought she had a really healthy attitude towards money and she, she's the kind of person that can command a really large salary, but she also, she's generous and, Mm -hmm. uh, oriented towards the common good. You know, she's not selfish. She's not just like trying to accrue as much profit as possible for herself or something like that. And to see someone that, like, again, I, I recognize your values and trust you and you can make a decent chunk of money and do something good with it say, like, oh, I hadn't seen that before. I just hadn't yeah. had an embodied experience of that. Um, and that made a huge difference to me. It made it, made me more able to engage with that and be like, okay, I can earn some money and do some good with it. I don't have to just be repelled and repulsed by it.
0: One way that I like to see money uh, is it's analogous to, it's like human energy. It's energy for for our societies, because where money goes, things happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for a business, if there's no money, if there's, if there's no energy, if there's no food coming in, you die. And um, if you get lots and lots and lots of energy or money, then you can do lots and lots of things with it. Um, but, you know, it's fundamentally necessary, for better or for worse, at least uh, to for our societies. And um, I think I see businesses as just um, problem-solving engines or entities. And they and money is just how they, it's just a tool that they use to to make it happen. And you know, I, I look at Elon Musk is the first man to spring to mind. Um, I think he would actually, I think he's actually a, could win a Nobel Peace Prize because of the stuff that he's working on, trying to save the planet through various mecha, through through various means. Um, and he's doing all of them through a you know private enterprise. Um, so. Yeah, I think um a reframing of, of money and business is quite important because a lot of the the discourse around um companies and corporations and businesses and money is like corporations are bad. That's that. Whereas I see it in the complete opposite. I see it these corporations are wonderful things because they solve our problems. However, if they step out of line, if we allow them to act in ways that are, you know, bad for everyone, that's when the bad things happen, you know, like environmental degradation and all that. But I I fundamentally, I fundamentally see that as like our responsibility. If these companies are operating within democratic countries, then we shouldn't be letting them step over these boundaries. Right. Like we should be holding them to account. Um, So, yeah, I'm like i i' am writing something at the moment about this, which is why I'm kind of it's it's fresh um in my mind. Because I, I think of myself as you know quite far on the left, but I just completely distance myself or just do not agree with the um this this idea that all that the the market's a bad that you know the the company's a bad. Uh, I just see it as like we just kinda need to tweak how we how we see these things um yeah. a, a little bit.
1: I think part of it is about expanding the definition of the problem space, you know, that it's like um, you say they're solving problems and in a sense, like, yeah, we went into lockdown and I wanted to have some exercise equipment in my house. And so I could go online and go exercise equipment, please. And then there's a company that solved that, you know, they solved my problem. Um, But they also created a bunch of other problems, you know, for the, Quality of life for the workers and for the pollution that they put out into the environment, and you know, there's there's other other components which are not so easily, you know, money creates a very easy thing to pay attention to and to track, and that you can add and subtract, and you know, it's like a it's like a universal metric almost. Um, whereas the things that really matter to people are unquantifiable, and so if you're exclusively focused on this quantifiable metric, you're missing out and not paying attention to the more important stuff, which can't be quantified, like satisfaction, meaning, quality of life, all those things. And so we get so focused on, on solving these quantifiable problems that we're actually creating a lot of problems in the unquantifiable space. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a bigger kind of problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They term it like economists call them externalities, right? These things that are external, which is the biggest joke. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I know we're getting close to to wrapping up. Um, What are you um, really excited about at the moment? Or what are you, what do you think requires just a lot more attention uh, that hasn't been getting as much attention?
1: That's interesting. I feel like I feel excited about my own stuff (laughs) and and I don't feel like it needs more attention. <laughs> like it feels, it's, it's like maybe this is kind of a lockdown answer. I think like, I feel like kind of in, in a bubble and having the same conversation and doing the same thing for a few months. Like it's just this like in a loop, right, around around and it's a good loop and I'm glad to be here. Um, but I feel it, someone asked me recently as well, you know, uh, another podcaster actually asked who should I be interviewing? Who, who's really exciting you at the moment. And I felt like, Oh, I don't, I don't feel like I've got a great answer right now. Like I I feel like I'm I'm a bit low on, on freshness, you know, it's like, I I feel like I'm still a bit in um, intellectual quarantine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So that's not a very exciting answer, but it's just a recognition for myself. Like, yeah, I I really am looking forward to kind of getting out of the bubble and, and getting more into interacting with people and, and, and discovering newness again. Um, Some of the stuff that's been most exciting to me lately has, has, I mean, what I've been looking for, we sort of touched briefly on my relationship with social justice, you know, that I've got this, this leftist commitments, but also uh, some dissatisfaction with it. What I'm, I have uh, part of what's really helped me with that is getting into political metamodernism. That's been um, kind of a breakthrough for me. It's like, I feel like I'm finding a new political home and there's, I'm looking for a bridge from postmodern social justice to this, yeah, this new Nordic Political metamod- metamodernism that's Emerging, and I think the bridge Will look like the overlap Between social justice and Development, like personal development Adult development, child development, whatever um, And and So I've been looking for things that sit in that Overlap, and the one that I've found so far That's most exciting is called uh, Raising Free People, and it's a I mean, it's a website, it's a podcast, book Lots of different materials and stuff about like How do we raise free people, how do we Um, it's, it's an anti-oppressive project. You know, it's a liberation project. It's a social justice project, but it's focused on nurturance. It's focused on care. It's focused on education and development. And that I think is a really uh, surprisingly unique thing. You know, a lot of social justice is focused on opposition and um, it's like, we've got to put a stop to injustice thing, but to have this developmental focus, I think is really unique and really generative.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like social justice, Mm -hmm. Is normally focused on removing constraints, right? So if you think yeah. about it as the tree, it's about removing the constraints to stopping the tree from flourishing. But then if you've kind of removed those constraints, then you're like, okay, well, how do we ensure that that tree um, flourishes as much as possible? And I think the tree analogy is a good one for freedom because every time you move up in terms of uh, the freedoms that you're afforded, you have access to more freedoms. You know, because I have my basic needs taken care of and I am literate, like me being literate, just for instance, opens up so many more doors. And then when I go down those doors, it, it just extends, it extends, it extends. Um, that's really interesting. Maybe, um,
1: maybe another way to just illustrate that is like my own transition with working with organizations early on I was really focused on care and making sure that people are taken care of. So like when they have a problem, they know where to go and that they can get some emotional support and, you know, find their way to, to getting a resolution. That's, that's that like kind of a social justice focus. And now it's more like that care is not just about resolving problems and, and being there for someone who's having a hard time. It's also focused on growth. Like, okay, Uh, how would you like to become better? Like, what are your development goals? Like what, what, what skills would you like to develop? And, um, that's, yeah, that's the developmental dimension to it. You know, like how do we proactively encourage each other to become the better versions of ourselves?
0: Yeah. Do you have any um, other reading resources or books, podcasts, essays, just on this, I mean, on the metamodernism, um, perhaps that.
1: Well, I'm, um, I've got a, a newsletter, which I publish like once a month or every two months, um, at rich which is just where I, where I share basically what I'm reading, what podcast I'm listening to, just to sort of curating the ones that feel the most interesting, the most important. So that's the easiest way for people to, um, yeah, sample from some of the same stuff. I call it what I'm paying attention to. So it's just yep. like, this is the stuff that's got my attention right now. So that's, that's a useful resource, I think. And, and I'm always curious there too, as well. Like I said, I feel a a little bit insulated at the moment. So I'm curious for if someone's listening and they hear like, ah, you should totally read this. Then, um, certainly throw that my way on, on, on Twitter or through the newsletter.
0: Yeah. So where can people find you online?
1: Well, on Twitter is where I'm active, rich decibels and, um, something about that environment. I find really fun. And especially in public, don't, don't send me a private message. I've got so many, uh, my inbox is full and I don't pay much attention, but, um, get me in public and I, and I find that fun to interact with. Um, and from there you can go to my website, rich And from there, there's like links to all the different things that are happening. If you're, I guess the, the one that like, kind of plug bit to say is if you're interested in some of these relational practices that I've been talking about, we're doing another, Microsolidarity practice program in the last two weeks of July. And you can find out about that at microsolidarity.cc.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll, uh, I'll link all of that uh, in the in the show notes. Um, tell me about, just before we close off, Rich Decibels, where did the Decibels come from?
1: Well, my initials are RDB, Richard Dennis Bartlett. And um, during the phase, like between leaving the church and finding Occupy, there was a lot of kind of drifting around and not sure what I was doing. And at some stage I got the really, really excellent advice to, um, to like, Rich, you're quite creative. You're actually an inventor and you should have a studio. And so I got invited to join a sort of collective art studio practice place. And, um, and I started building, yeah, I've got this whole history of building noise machines and audio devices and electronics and stuff like that uh, and it was there was kind of like a brainstorming process in that in that collective and um, we settled on a brand for me which was rich rich decibels because RDB like DB is decibels and also rich decibels as in it's like, you know, rich as in high quality and decibels as in volume. And it's
0: like, I talk a lot. I I hope that what I'm saying is rich, you know, it's just like, (laughs) that's brilliant. That's brilliant. But you say noise machine, I take it that that's not just like a speaker, right? Like it's a particular kind of noise as well.
1: Yeah. Noise machines as in, um,
0: like white noise or uh, pink noise. I was reading about yesterday. uh,
1: Uh, Not just that, but more like experimental, sometimes music, but other times it's not very musical. Uh, So yeah, sometimes it's harmonious, but yeah, experimental sounds um, that weird people like myself like to mix together to create weird soundscapes with some of which are very abrasive and others, which very melodious. (laughs)
0: Lovely. Lovely. All right. Well, um, I think we'll end um, on that wonderful note. Um, Thanks for taking the time, Rish.
1: Thanks for the interview. Much appreciated, Sam.
0: So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Richard. If you would like to follow up on some of the things discussed, just head to my website where you can find the show notes for this episode. And again, uh, I highly recommend uh, checking out some of Richard's work. I think it's uh, very important uh, given the times that we're in. And uh, I hope you tune into some of the uh, upcoming podcasts I have coming up because I just think they're very interesting and pretty exciting. Uh, One is on the thermodynamic principle of constructal law with Professor Adrian Bejan. And another is on information and how it can unlock our understanding of just about everything. uh, And that is with uh, Paul Davies. So stay tuned. And until next time, thank you for listening.